Uh, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here this morning uh, with you as we together can share in God's word and meditate and reflect upon it. And uh, I bring also the greetings of our, your sister congregation on the, uh, the east end of Dundee in Brothy Ferry. And we pray regularly for you and are aware that we are also sustained by your prayers and we praise God for that. Um, yes, I am from Brothy Ferry, but as you know, I'm not from the UK. Uh, I'm all the way from Brazil. Yes, yeah, so I'm much from further west than any of you probably has ever been in the world. Yeah, can brag about it. Um, I was thinking about what to share with you, and I, it's a sermon I shared with my congregation uh, as we went through a long series in Matthew's Gospel. And some things that are interesting about Matthew's Gospel. First, he apparently uh, arranged his material interspersed with, you know, sections of teaching. So you have description, history, a little bit of biography, and then you have this chunk of Jesus' teaching. For example, you have introductory chapters all the way to chapter 4, and then from chapter 5 to chapter 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically teaching his kingdom agenda as he lays out what he's all about in terms of the transformational truth of the gospel. And then he moves on, chapter 13, you have the parables of the kingdom. And through a series of parables, he teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is very careful about his Jewish immediate audience, so he does not like to use as much kingdom uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, kingdom of God out of respect for the name of God. He tends to use kingdom of heaven most of the times, but it doesn't matter. He means the same thing. So throughout his, his, his gospel, there is also the theme of how Jesus is calling us into discipleship, and he's calling us into mission. And this is uh, probably summarized at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, when he commissions the church uh, as they are already going into the world, they are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit teaching them everything Jesus has taught them. So there's a strong emphasis on teaching, making disciples, mature followers of Jesus Christ, who are then empowered by the presence of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the teaching and the Word of Christ to go into the world and to make more disciples as God gives them opportunity and power to go. I uh, find it interesting, Psalm 127, which I always read from a personal point of view, 127. But when you read from the kingdom perspective and the Jewish uh, communities going up to Jerusalem, you have to ask the question, which house are we talking about here? Which city are we talking about here? Which family are we talking about here that God will make prosper and prevail despite enemies, etc.? It's the house of the Lord, the kingdom of the Lord, the family of the Lord. And they will prosper. They will prevail. And everything we do as church will prosper if God's hand is upon us, is upon you. So it has an application for family as well. You know, I'm a father of two, well, I can call them young men now. They're quite old. Uh, well, 
enough to be called the young men, but also for the church as a family. So now back into our passage uh, as a way to understand how uh, Jesus speaks to this man and he engages in conversation with this man. Some of the Gospels will say that Jesus looks at this man and he loved him. So there is a deep appreciation and interest for this man. So Jesus is not dismissive of his questions. And he's not being sarcastic about his inquiries. There is an honest interest from Jesus towards this man. And I think this man is honest in his question in Matthew 19 about what it is actually needed for someone to be given access and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Many years ago, I was watching the movie uh, The Aviator, uh, which is a biography of Howard Hughes, and it was interpreted by Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, yeah? And uh, there's a scene in the movie when he was invited to have lunch with his girlfriend, which was uh, the actress uh, Catherine Hepburn. And there was a shock, a kind of a clash of cultures there between the kind of man he was and the kind of family uh, Catherine Hepburn uh, came from. And they were quite different, both healthy, actually. Sorry, wealthy. Everyone there, very wealthy. They had plenty of money. Um, But he felt quite uncomfortable with their demeanor, their values, the way they speak to each other and how he was becoming more and more sidelined as the conversation goes. Have you ever been in that situation? You go to a place and you try to mingle and you try to be part of it, but somehow that invisible barrier forms and you realize that actually you are in a clique that's already been formed and you are not uh, in, you are out. You are there and you're eating and you are at the table, but you are not in. You are out. You know, those cultural, uh, non-verbal language, languages that we develop as how to tell people you're welcome or okay for you to be here. But, you know, that's as far as you go. And then the conversation goes and they speak about philosophy. They speak about politics and they speak about money. And it was uh, Mrs. Hepburn, uh, not Catherine, I think it's her mother, who eventually will say, we don't care about money here. And Howard Hughes was fed up with all that, with that posh, you know, uh, upper class, uh, false sense of security. And he says, well, you don't care about it because you have it. I'm not saying that the man is completely right, you know, because I think he was pursuing the wrong thing throughout his whole life, which was money as well. But probably he was more honest and more frank to admit it. He cared about money. And he would say it. Whereas others would try to put all those layers of, uh, I don't know, good philosophies, good ideologies, good ideas. A more polite way of living in order to mask that. And he rips, you know, all those layers apart and tells them the truth as it is. And of course... If you're watching the movie, that's the point. You know, there's an awkward situation and he leaves the room and so the movie goes on to tell us his story. There's another story I'd like to share with you and that story I learned from uh, Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey is a, a New Testament scholar 
and he uh, wrote a book on Jesus through uh, Middle Eastern eyes, how he, having spent so many years in the Middle East uh, as, 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 a, as, as a, a clergyman, uh, Bailey uh, studied the cultural setting of uh, the, those areas, and he's well-versed in, in Hebrew, Aramaic, etc., and trying to see how those cultures are able to preserve for a long time a way of life as well, a way of understanding life. And he then, with that in mind, goes back to the Gospels and start to read them and try to read them afresh. And, but that's not the point here. It's just to give you a little gist of what the book is about. But he goes through the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And in that, when he is analyzing that in, in terms of the cultural settings, he tells us a story he learned from uh, Mother Teresa from Calcutta. Um, it's a story of this very poor Indian lady with a large family uh, in the slums of Calcutta. And from time to time, she would receive a parcel of rice. We're talking about a kilo, not more than that. For a whole family, we Brazilians, we love to eat rice. It's almost every day. By the way, I know how to cook rice, okay? So you can, uh, well, later on we can see what, what I can do for you. But anyway, so the lady received that parcel. Immediately, she divides it in half. One half, she leaves at the table. The other half, she goes to her neighbor and gives half of a very small parcel of rice to her neighbor. But her family is big, so many mouths to feed. And the question is inevitable, why did you do that? And her answer was quite simple, but it's a very interesting answer, because they didn't have any. Because they didn't have any. It tells so much about that lady's priorities, so much about that lady's heart, and so much about how she is learning the model of generosity Jesus Christ spells out, describes uh, in, in his gospel. In the Sermon on the, of the Mount, on the Mount, Jesus says, well, try not to accumulate treasure here in heaven, oh, sorry, on earth, because you know what's going to happen. Try not to build up your expectations on what you can have here because eventually it will, be, it will deteriorate. But have your treasure up in heaven, meaning your faith, your dedication, and your belonging to Jesus Christ as a follower, as a disciple, living the here and now by his word, as well as you follow him, as you take up your cross and you follow him. That's Matthew chapter 11. So a fantastic transformation here that Jesus is challenging us all to endure sometimes or to enjoy in other times every day as we value and appreciate the kingdom of heaven rather than whichever other kingdoms we might have in mind. So here is a man in the passage who is about to make a serious discovery about himself. And of course, you've read the passage, he is not going to like it. 
As you look to the man, this man, you know, he has pristine credentials, doesn't he? He is wealthy. He is positively popular. You know, nowadays, people, uh, they're not necessarily wanting to be positively popular. They just want to be popular, even if it is for the wrong reasons. Some people, they just want to be there on the screens of your TV or computer or on your tablets or, or mobile phones. That's what they want to do. That, you know, as long as they have visibility, whether they are a good boy or a bad boy, doesn't matter. As long as, you know, his popularity points are all the way up. And somehow, I don't know how, but he benefits from it. But this guy here, he's a good guy. He has a good reputation as a ruler, and we learn that from the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. He is wealthy. He is a man of good reputation. He is a ruler. He has a leadership role in the community. He is young. And this is a very rare combination here. To be young, to be wealthy, to be a, of a, a popular in your community, to be already in a position of leadership, and not that, and not following that kind of stereotype that sometimes we th- we think or we have of those young rich men in our own congregation that we might think of them more like a playboy rather than you know this very distinct. Uh, uh, with good reputation, respectable uh, young ruler that approached Jesus. And of course, he is religious. He is religious. Because the question, at least, he's asking Jesus is not a question about money, it's a question about heaven. It's a religious question. But as he engaged in conversation with Jesus, his pitfalls were quite clear. And you can see from the passage that he is an idolater because he loves money more than Jesus. He loves money more than the kingdom. And can you see the contrast between this man here with lots of wealth and property and that woman I told you the story about with just a parcel of rice? That if she had kept it in full, wouldn't keep feeding her family for long? But here you have a man, very sad, because Jesus is asking him to give his whole wealth to the poor. And here you have a very poor woman living day by day, and probably living by faith, not knowing what she's going to eat, you know, the next week or maybe the next day. And yet she has that kingdom generosity, which is clearly is lacking in this man's in this man's heart. And that's the thing about idolatry, isn't it? It's a love thing, isn't it? Idolatry, it's a love thing. Of course, when you love the wrong thing, that enslaves you. And that's what the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is telling you. When we decide to love something, someone, more or uh, as, or against, you know, the love that we are called to have for God, that type of love eventually it enslaves and destroys us. And it's surprising for us to be reminded of, or reminded of that because you have to remember what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not talking about money. He is talking about family, brother, sister, father, mother. 
Friends. Idolatry is a love thing. And it's so insidious uh, that I don't dare to say that I'm, uh, you know, the, the, the end product of what Jesus is doing through this process, which we call, you know, big word comes here, sanctification. You know, you have Jesus, and Jesus now is he's cleaning the area. He is demolishing old shrines of old idols that existed there. He is transforming this. I remember when they started the works uh, at the, the waterfront. And I remember sharing that with the congregation. And you could see the pictures of how it was going to look like. And I said, you know, but the plan is there. And it's being executed. So do not lose heart. But from time to time, by God's grace, he points us to some aspect of our personality, of our intentions, of our desires, that reveals a tiny little idol that needs to be clashed, that needs to be demolished, it needs to be removed. Because the word love is not here, I understand it, but the idea definitely is. He is self-righteous because he, think, he thinks that he can do something to achieve heaven. And the use of words here in the passage is very important. What can I do to have? He speaks like a businessman. He speaks like a man used to have what he set his eyes on. What shall I do to have? To have to have the kingdom? Maybe he meant something else. But you know, you know, sometimes you know Freud and slip, you know, and you betray yourself by the way you say things, you know. My other country, because I'm by the way, I'm British, okay? As well, okay. So my other country, Brazil, you know, the former president was arrested. Now he's on bail, etc. And he had a Freudian slip recently. He says, you know, I'm tired of all this. I'm tired of politics. I'm tired of this. I'm not going to uh, misguide and, and, and trick the people again. Ooh. Well, you know. My goodness, that, 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 that's gold for, the, for, for, his, for his opposition, isn't it? That's gold. Why? Again? So you really did it, didn't you? Although denying again and again and again. But there you are. So here's this man. What can I do to have the kingdom? And he is trying to obtain it by himself, for himself. So he's self-righteous. Um, and that's the problem with the self-righteous. Because self-righteous is not, in seek of rede- is not seeking for redemption Self-righteous tend to be seeking for control over the situation. What can I do to make it right? What can I do to enjoy the benefits of this proposal? What can I do and what will I do in order to have it? And it's an interesting thing. I think it works in the business world. And I think it works in many other areas of life, like, you know, if you're studying and preparing yourself for professional life uh, or for a next step or next stage in your career. And I understand that. It demands discipline, demands diligence, and demands, you know, that eagerness for you want it and you go for it. And then you have that very satisfying feeling that, you know, you worked hard and you achieved it. And I can't see anything wrong with that in principle. But the kingdom of heaven is different, isn't it? It is so many 
have said it so many times, it's an upside-down kingdom. You can't earn it. You can't have it. Because it's not yours to have. As well, it's not yours even to give. We know that. But the self-righteous, you know, as he tries to control all the areas of life, he's trying to control this, which no human being has any control over. We cannot control uh, redemption. And he is deluded because of that, not realizing how seriously sin has damaged our relationship with God. Uh, he might have thought that he had, you know, Midas touch, you know, Greek mythology, King Midas, he was, inverted commas, blessed, you know, that everything he touched would turn into gold. And he thought initially, great, until he realized that when he touched food, it would turn to gold, and we can't eat gold, can we? And he touched his daughter, and she was turning to gold. And that which seems to be the pinnacle of his wealth and power became his greatest curse. It wasn't a blessing, it was a curse. And it became very evident that this is the kind of man he was when he was challenged to Jesus. And Jesus challenged him in two basic areas, which is the summary of, of, of the law and the prophets in other passages of the New Testament, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus quotes loosely the second half of the Ten Commandments, and then he challenges this man with a question that addresses the first four commandments. Well, give up your idol and follow the Lord. And he couldn't. He failed to utterly love God and he failed to utterly love his neighbor. And of course, Matthew is all about believing in Jesus, following Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus, and then, empowered and trained by Jesus, go into the mission of Jesus into the world. And he utterly fails to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's all now revealed. Of course, Jesus is much more polished, much more polite than Howard Hughes, you know. He is very gentle, but he is persistent with that man. Jesus' proposal was not focused on what to be achieved. He wants to have the kingdom as a good or commodity. Jesus invites him for a change of heart that would reframe his goals and lifestyle. It's the invitation to become a disciple. And here's the question. How can discipleship, how does discipleship reshape and equip us for the journey home? Where is home? Where is home? So the young man wanted to possess and enter the kingdom, whereas Jesus demanded to be followed. Following Jesus is more important than what he wants to achieve. Verses 21, 27, and 28. Jesus mentioned there that he has to be followed. And this, uh, bear that in mind that it doesn't matter how long it takes in the process of following Jesus. And it doesn't matter how hard it might be as long as he keeps following the king. And that's at the core of discipleship. Sometimes, you know, very uh, uh, serious challenges will be presented to you 
And you have to be very careful where your priorities are. This man's priorities was his wealth. Wasn't the poor, and definitely wasn't Jesus. And for his own disappointment, it wasn't the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven wasn't his priority. His wealth was. That was his love. That was his idol. But he has to believe that Jesus is telling the truth. And Jesus presents him with a command and with a promise. The command is, follow me. The promise is, you will have a treasure in heaven. I don't know about you, I'm a very visual learner. I know how to play guitar a little bit, just a little bit, okay? All right, just a little bit. And the way I learned was actually watching I would ask my brother, well, how do I do this? And he would do, and I would do it uh, with my own guitar, with friends. Uh, and that's how I learned, you know, if you put a, 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 a book, uh, you know, a handbook, you know, how to learn a guitar, probably, you know, I would struggle a little bit more. So seeing what the other is doing helps me. And there's a challenge here because Jesus is promising something to this man that is invisible. Is not unreal, it is invisible. I like to watch, you know, science programs, and there are so many invisible stuff in the universe. So much invisible stuff in the universe. And people talk about dark energy, dark matter, and all this stuff. And you don't see it, it doesn't affect us, it doesn't change or almost anything in our daily living, but they're there, so they say. Yes, and they are so fussy about us Christians telling about the existence of God. Well, why can't we? Since we have enough evidence for that. But anyway, that's another conversation. A command and a promise. Follow me and you have treasure in heaven. Because that's what matters. Treasure in heaven. Wasn't that your question? It isn't about the kingdom of heaven. Isn't about your place there. And the enjoyment of all the kingdom of heaven can offer. But there you are. Follow me. Give up on your love that has enslaved you. And you will have treasure in heaven. So therefore there's a a word of counsel here. A word of wisdom here. For us to beware wealth and riches. And the false sense of security they give us. Such false security is toxic. And godless, despite all good intentions in your supposed religious motivations. We're going through a financial crisis again, aren't we? Strange, you know, I've been in the UK long enough to go through two financial crises. One, you know, because of the stock market, 2008, nine ish And now here we are because of COVID. What is God telling us? What are the things we truly rely on? What is really important in life? You know, it could be bad management that robbed people from their savings. It could be a pandemic that puts all the business to a, to a halt. It could be something else. Treasure in heaven is much better. As we prod along through the, the bumps and potholes in life 
for the time God allows us to live here. It is a journey. Discipleship is a journey that demands constant learning, constant following, following, constant surrender. Give up your wealth and follow me, said Jesus. Constant love. Give it to the poor and love me instead, says Jesus. So it seems like an impossible task, isn't it? And I think Jesus would agree because his disciples are astonished. It's interesting how disciples are astonished. In the previous passage, they're astonished because Jesus set the bar about marriage so high. And they say, well, it's better not to get married then. Yeah, it's not the women that are making those comments. It's the men. They find it hard. (laughs) And then Jesus now talks about wealth. And they're astonished then. Well, who then can be saved? Because apparently we all, we all like it. We all like some money. We all like comfortable lives. We all like to know that our pension is coming every month. And depending on what kind of pension scheme you're in, you want to see it, you know, following the inflation rate. So you will not have loss of income or, or that the equivalence of income you have today in 10 years' time. Don't we? Constant surrender. And it seems an impossible task, Jesus, uh, from the disciples' point of view. After all, nothing but God's grace and power can make us fit for the kingdom. So the answer, the question was wrong from the beginning, but revealed a lot about that man's heart. To make us fit for the kingdom, only the grace, mercy of Jesus. Only a miracle can make a camel go through the eye of a needle. People try all sorts of interpretations here. Oh, the camel is, you know, it's an actual camel, but the eye of a needle is a small gate that existed in Jerusalem. uh, the, The problem is, apparently, that gate did not exist in Jesus' time. So, yes, Jesus is just using hyperbole here. Imagine a camel, not a thick rope, the animal. And now imagine a needle. Even if that's a big one, you know, that big one doesn't, doesn't work, does it? And that's the point. It doesn't work. Because then he says, you know, what's impossible for men to do, it's not impossible for God to do. So if God can change the heart of a self-righteous, good, ruler, young man who thinks he can do and get his way into the kingdom by his own will, realizing that he has a big, massive idol in his heart, if God can make that change in somebody's life like the type of person that man was, surely he can change and do miracles in yours as well. Luke's gospel, who likes to talk about poverty even more so than Matthew, you have Zacchaeus. And it's interesting, nothing is requested from Zacchaeus apart from hospitality. And how does that man respond to Jesus' presence in his house? He responds with love He responds with learning. He responds with following. He responds with surrender. He responds with love. Master, 
I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And you know, I'm a tax collector. If anyone says I've uh, charged them illegally or unjustly, I will pay four times, fourfold. I will pay. Money is no longer the priority in my life. You are Jesus. And Jesus says, well, this man's been saved today. Jesus in the, high, in the house, but now Jesus is in the heart. So the rulers of this world, they will be demoted. Jesus promises his disciples to sit on thrones, to rule, not necessarily to pass sentence, but to rule forever. And we have to consider, because we're going to sing it, how seriously do we take the words of the hymn, Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always, thou and thou only, my, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. The, we have to stop trying. We have to start surrendering. And therefore, we come in faith, not in works. We come in faith and taste that the Lord is good and only the Lord is good as that man had to learn. The lowly place and the humble attitude of a child, according to a a commentator, is the greatest in the kingdom. And that's the last comment I make on this passage. Immediately before, Jesus is welcoming children, blessing them, and saying, for uh, of such of these is, is the kingdom composed, or they, such of these are the ones who belong to the kingdom, the little children. And then Matthew arranges his material in such a way that immediately after, here comes this man. And it's interesting because whereas they try to stop the kids, you know, the children to come to Jesus, this man seems to, be, to have been given, you know, free access to Jesus. No one is stopping him. After all, he is the wealthy, good-looking, young man, well-respected member of society, religious man. And he comes. Sad, you know, some churches would have elected him as an elder. But he still needs to be saved. The lowly place and humble attitude of a child, that's how he should have come to Jesus, deemed to be the greatest in the kingdom. Let us pray. Uh, Dear God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for its challenges as well, and its consolations. The impossible task is not impossible to you because if you built up the house, work is not going to be in vain. If you secures and protects the city, vigilance will not be something uh, that is unnecessary. So we praise you. Praise you for Jesus, his power to save, his honesty and truth, his calling for us to respond in faith and believe in him to surrender our lives to him, to love him, and then to follow him. Enable us here, Lord, as your people, to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.